Good morning, everyone. A very happy new year and welcome to morning worship. Um, it's lovely to have Tanashi's friend with us. I'm sorry I didn't catch your name. Elisa, it's lovely to see you and we hope you really enjoy your time with us. And if there are any other visitors I haven't spotted, you are very welcome. Our service this morning will be led by our Minister Katrina and everything we need to follow the service is both on the printed order of service that you were handed as you came in and will appear on the screen behind me. In the course of this service, we will welcome Talash into the membership of our church. And towards the end of our time of worship, we will join together in communion. And everyone who is trying to follow Jesus is invited to take part in communion. But if you'd rather not, for any reason at all, just pass the bread and wine on to the person next to you. Everyone is warmly invited to stay and have some tea or coffee and biscuits. And I think there might be a special cake, Talash, uh, after this service. Could the trustees please note there will be a five-minute meeting of the trustees, just a quick five-minute meeting of trustees in the Kelvin suite after this service. Then at 7pm, our evening worship will be held in Wellington Church and that service will be led by Robin Green. You may have heard already the sad news of the death of Graham Mole. Um, even if you didn't know Graham personally, you will have sung his hymns many times. Graham was both a hymn writer and an artist based here in Glasgow. And some of the hymns that we sing most often were written by him. Take this moment, sign and space. Will you come and follow me if I but call your name? We cannot measure how you heal. Heaven shall not wait. Come with me, come wander, come welcome the world. At communion we often sing, bread is blessed and broken. And there's that beautiful Christmas hymn that we sing to the tune of Scarlet Ribbons. Who would think that what was needed to transform and change the world? All of these were written by Graham and the music was written by John Bell. He has died ridiculously young and his funeral will be held on Friday at 11am in St Mary's Cathedral on Great Western Road. And all of us are welcome to attend that service at 11am on Friday. Then can I just say again how grateful we are to everyone who made a donation towards the cost of our community Christmas Day lunch. This year, 51 people attended and they very much appreciated both the, the lunch and the company on Christmas Day. So thank you so much for all your contributions. Uh, just a quick lost property announcement. If you've lost either a silk purse, a police car, or a woolly hat, see me after the service. Next Sunday at 11am, morning worship will be led by Katrina, and in the evening at 7pm, Rebecca Gebauer will lead evening worship in Wellington Church. These are all our notices. Thank you, Anne. Sounds like one of those um, tests that the doctors use, doesn't it, to test you, check your memory, tell you three words, and at the end of the service, see if you can remember them. A silk purse, a police car, and a woolly hat. That would make a really good selection, wouldn't it? As we gather to worship God this morning, we hear some words from Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gate. 
He blesses your children within you. He grants peace within your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His words run swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down hail like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and ordinances to Israel. He is not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his ordinances. Praise the Lord. We're on a slightly odd day today. Epiphany is actually tomorrow, but we're still in the season of Christmas. We're also at the turn of a year when world events are troubling, and I think some of that tension is, is, is captured in that, that psalm. But we're going to sing, um, because it's near enough Epiphany, some of the great Epiphany hymns um, during this service. And so we're going to join together as we sing, Love came down at Christmas, love all lovely, love divine. Love was born at Christmas, star and angels gave the sign. So we're going to come to God in prayer, and as is our custom and practice, after I've guided our prayers, we are invited to join together in the Lord's Prayer, in the language, the version that feels the most normal and natural. If you'd like to join in but don't know the words, there will be a version on the screen, but if you prefer to sit quietly, that is also absolutely fine. So let's pray together. God beyond times and seasons, God of this time and this season, we come to you now as your people, seeking welcome and acceptance, hope and encouragement. For some of us, the new year brings a real sense of excitement and new possibilities. For some of us, 
the new year brings growing anxiety, fear and uncertainty. For all of us, the year as it unfolds will prove to be a mixture of highs and lows, joys and sorrows, love and loss. So, as we gather, each of us with our private hopes and fears, we do so reminded that you are always with us. That before we woke up, you brought forth a new day. That as we meet, you listen attentively to our words and alert to our deepest feelings. <coughs> that later, as the day draws to a close, you will watch over us until the morning, when your love will be as fresh and new as it has been this day. God beyond times and seasons. God of this time and this season. We bring to you the thoughts of our minds and the feelings of our hearts. We offer you our thanks for what has been good and life-affirming. We offer our sorrow for what has been bad or life-destroying. We seek your forgiveness for the shortcomings of which we are aware. And we receive your promise of a slate wiped clean and all sinfulness removed. God beyond times and seasons. God of this time and this season. You who love us with a never-ending love from which nothing can separate us. We offer you our very selves this day, that you will enable us to be the best we can be as we continue to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, who taught his followers to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
So, Talash, can I invite you to come and join me? We'll stand slightly to the side of the microphones, then people can see your face and not the great stalk sticking up. So we're using our, our usual form of words, um, so we have a, a bit of consistency with this. And when we get to the right point, if this is your regular place of worship, you are, will be invited to stand if you're able to make your promises to Talash. In the name of our loving God, it is our joy to welcome Talash into the membership of this church. She has been a disciple of Jesus for many years and is committed to serving God in this community. Today, we acknowledge and thank God for that commitment. So, Talash, I ask you these questions. Do you believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your creator and redeemer and the sustainer of all things? I do. This is the God in whom I trust. Do you believe that God has led you to share in the worship, life, and witness of this local congregation? I do, and I thank God for the gift of fellowship. Will you share with us the gifts God has given you that, together, we may serve God in our local community and in the wider world? I will. All I have is given by God. As Baptist Christians, we covenant together as a community of disciples of Jesus Christ. Baptised into his name, we share the joys and responsibilities of fellowship. We gather for worship and to discern the mind of Christ. Together, we seek the kingdom of God through prayer, witness, and service. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we seek to build one another up in love. Will you share with us this common life and service? And will you walk together with us before God in ways that are known and yet to be made known? I will. Thanks be to God. Thank you. And so I now invite those who are able to stand if you wish to... Make your promises to Talash. Do you welcome Talash into the fellowship of this worshipping community? We do. This is our joy and our calling. God has given us the gift of Talash, and through her has given us gifts for ministry in the life and witness of this congregation. Will you support her in Christian service and in the responsibilities of church membership? We will. Thanks be to God. Will you pray for and encourage her through hospitality, friendship and prayer? We will, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ. So, Talash, we welcome you and Anne will do this officially with the holy hug of <laughs> fellowship. And can we express our welcome? Somebody did comment to me that this is the second month running we've had somebody covenanting with us. So, you know, if you've been here a little while and you're thinking, mm, maybe we're always up for another one. Next month we can't because it's a joint service. But, you know, March is coming. No pressure. You're welcome whether or not you choose to covenant with us. It's honestly no pressure whatsoever. We have an absolutely beautiful hymn which we're going to listen to today. Um, it's our custom here at Hillhead to invite people as they make their covenant with us to choose a hymn or song that's meaningful for them. And Talish very graciously gave me one in Swahili, which we're going to use, and one in English, which we're not. But we do have a translation of the one in Swahili.
Husay 11 to chapter 11, 1 to 4, 9 to 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the balls and offering incense to idols. Yet, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord, who roars like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, says the Lord. From Matthew 2, 1 to 15. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him, and calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. 
Now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfil what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Matthew chapter 5, 17-20 Jesus said, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And from Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. When the worship group met to plan the next couple of sermon series, somebody suggested it would be a good idea to offer a short series of overviews of the Gospels. And I responded along the lines that are familiar to them and familiar to many others. Of course, in the earliest days, long before anybody tried to collate what would become the canon of Scripture, each faith community may have only had access to one of these accounts. 
and that would have significantly shaped their understanding of the good news of Jesus. And in the conversation that followed, a working title emerged based on a popular radio programme that's been running since 1942. Anybody listen to that one? A few people? So Desert Island Discs. It was the idea of Roy Plumley who presented it for more than 40 years. And it's a really simple format. Guests have to imagine that they are going to be cast away on a desert island. And they are given, to take onto their desert island, a copy of the complete works of Shakespeare. No, I don't know why that one either and a Bible or the holy or philosophical book of their choice. And then eight gramophone records and one luxury item. The luxury item is meant to be a thing, though one person did manage to sneak in their cat. I forgot to write down who it was, but one person got a cat in, so I was happy about that. But the reasons for the choices of the music and the object, or whatever it was, formed a conversation, and that was the broadcast. And as we thought about, or as I started to think about desert islands, I also found myself drawn back to a television programme that I used to watch in black and white when I was a very young child. Thank you, yeah, The Adventures of Robinson Crusoe. If you're a um, Chris Evans fan, he also uses that on his radio show. He's just about the same age as me. It's probably that kind of... People who were children in the 60s, just about into the 70s. Of course, The Adventures of Robinson Crusoe is based on a Daniel Defoe novel, the story of a man who was shipwrecked on a desert island. And he discovers, amongst the, the stuff that lands on his island, not one... Not two, but three Bibles. But he reevaluates his life and he has a series of visions or possibly feverish hallucinations that really challenge him. And part of the story is how he works out what it means for him to be a Christian and he brings, sets out to bring to faith the one other person he meets on the island. Now, I would have to admit, is it very much a story of its time? It's very white, colonial, and there are aspects of that that are rightly discomforting. But actually, at the centre of it is a man 
reflecting on the scriptures on his desert island about his life. So what if we were on a metaphorical desert island and the only book we had was the gospel attributed to Matthew? What might we learn about Jesus from that and how might it shape our lives when we could sail away back to our homes? In our reflection this morning, I want to first offer some background about how scholars view this gospel and then to pick up a couple of the key themes that can be drawn from it. One of the questions that new believers in Jesus quite often ask, and they're good questions, are why are there four gospels? Why are there these four gospels? Why are the gospels in that order? Well, I can't give absolute answers to any of those questions because it's all lost in the mists of time. We know that the ecumenical councils of the early centuries spent a huge amount of effort and time trying to choose which um, texts would become part of the canon of Scripture and which would not. We know there were some very heated debates about what they chose to include and exclude. So the Gospel of John nearly didn't make it. The Book of James nearly didn't make it. Some people wanted to chuck out the whole Old Testament and just have the new ones. But we do know that eventually they kept four Gospels and others because there are others, such as the infancy Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Peter were rejected. Okay, so there are four Gospels, but why are they in that order? And why does Matthew come first? Well, two reasons are usually given for this. The first reason is that for hundreds of years, most of history since it was written, in fact, long after the canon was closed, it was believed that this was the oldest gospel and therefore must be the most reliable and will be placed first. The other reason is its attribution to the Apostle Matthew, one of Jesus' closest followers, which would support the idea of an early date and also suggest this was an eyewitness account. Surely, the thinking is, a gospel by an eyewitness must take precedence over one written second-hand. But there's a problem. You can't prove either of those assertions, and in fact, most contemporary scholarship not only questions them, it rejects them. The gospel attributed to Matthew is no longer to consider to be the oldest. That's now thought to be the gospel attributed to Mark. And it's really unlikely that the the author was an eyewitness to Jesus because a realistic date of the earliest extant manuscripts make that just untenable. It couldn't have been somebody who was alive because they would have been very, 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 very old, even by 21st century standards. So does it matter? Well, no. At one level, it definitely doesn't. It's still a sacred text, It's believed to be inspired by God, and therefore, as the Apostle Paul once wrote to a young preacher called Timothy, it's useful for teaching. And at another level, perhaps it does matter, because it invites us to come to it afresh, as we will with the other Gospels as well, and to recognise that it's a carefully crafted work written for use within and by a distinct community of people at a precise if ultimately indeterminate point in history, 
We don't know exactly when it was written. We don't know exactly who it was written for. But it clearly was written with people in mind. Scholars nowadays often speak of Matthew's community and try to work out why does he include this bit of the story or exclude that bit of the story? Why does he choose this theme? And why is that significant? I could have actually written a whole sermon series just on themes in Matthew. I thought you'd get bored long before I got to the end of it, and it wasn't what we agreed to. So I'm just picking two themes this morning, extension and fulfilment. When I was studying O-level RE back in the 1970s, our New Testament focus was on the Gospel of Luke with Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We were taught, and it was received wisdom at the time, that whilst Luke was a Gentile writing for Gentiles, Matthew was a Jew writing for Jews. Like everything you're taught at O-level, GCSE, Standard 5, O-grade, whatever it's called this week, it's a simplification. Scholars of Matthew's Gospel continue to recognise him and his community as being Jewish in background, but they note there is an anti-Jewish polemic in some of his writing that suggests it postdates their expulsion from the synagogue and possibly the sacking of Jerusalem. So there is a tension in this Gospel between a very Jewish Jesus, sometimes seen as being the new Moses, and a shift in understanding that sees the gospel as something to be shared beyond the bounds of first century Judaism. Because we tend to read the gospels in little bits, and because we find things like long lists, such as the genealogy with which the gospel begins really dull to read, we risk missing a wonderful and complicated truth, both that Jesus is fully Jewish, and that his human ancestry includes people who were not only not Jewish, they were also not men, and sometimes they were not respectable. Tamar, the rejected and mistreated widow who seemingly seduced her powerful former father-in-law. Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho. Ruth, the Moabite widow whose mother-in-law contrived an encounter with a distant kinsman called Boaz. And Bathsheba, or she's actually unnamed, she is referred to as the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who was lured into adultery by King David. For hundreds of years, unnoticed and in ways that are often messy, outsiders have found themselves caught up in the story of God. And the author of this first gospel identifies four of them among the four mothers of Jesus himself. This is a hint to what's going on in this gospel. But it goes further and it goes deeper. It is this gospel and only this gospel that we read about an unexplained cosmic phenomenon, a star, that alerts magi, possibly astronomers, quite likely astrologers, certainly not Jews and quite likely from Persia or modern-day Iran, to witness the birth of Jesus. Their journey and subsequent encounters make them, for Matthew's readers, 
the first witnesses to the child. The first people Matthew records seeing Jesus are not Jews. They're not even born in that part of the world. And they're definitely not of an in religion. Small wonder then that Herod was angry. And how shocking for those devout Jews who've come to believe in Jesus that they begin to discover he's not just for us, but he is for all nations. And worse, you know, those first witnesses, they're foreigners and they're another faith. But that's what Epiphany, which some churches will be marking tomorrow, is all about. The revelation of God to the Gentiles, to the nations, to the world. Now, let's fast forward to the very end of the Gospel and the final words that Jesus is recorded as saying. Now, it's certainly true that many scholars will say this is a later edition. The Trinitarian formula for baptism is not very likely to be original Jesus speak. That was something that developed in the century following his life, death and resurrection. But that's not the point. The point here is that Matthew ends with the Great Commission. We all know that. These devout Jews who've come to recognize Jesus as the son of Mary, the son of David, the son of man, and the son of God, all titles used in this gospel, now find, guess what? They are to go out to those nations, to the very foreigners that God has always seemed to be against. And they are to teach those people what it means to follow Jesus. So we have at each end of this gospel a really clear motif, motif sorry, of extension and inclusion. It couldn't be clearer, but it's really easy to overlook it. And it's challenging. It really challenges me because it says, well, who is it that I overlook? Who is it that not deliberately, but unthinkingly, I exclude as potential recipients of the good news? Who might I have the audacity to think is beyond God's grace and God's redemption? And who is it that God surprises me by including? We never quite get that one sussed. We might think we do, but there's always somebody or some group or whatever. This gospel extends the reader's understanding of whose God's salvation is for, but that's only part of a more complicated whole. But the heart of this gospel is an ongoing commitment to timeless truths at the heart of the Torah. The righteousness that arise, arises from understanding and living out the teaching of Moses. The motif of Jesus as a fulfillment of all that Moses began is expressed, not all that subtly, by the inclusion of the account of the family's flight into Egypt. When you were a child, did you, like me, think they went on a jet? Okay, it was just me. But they escaped to, to Egypt. Now, scholars will continue to argue over the historicity of these events. Did they go or did they not go? But what really struck me as puzzling is why would Joseph and Mary go to the nation 
that their ancestors despised and associated with being oppressed. It's not the obvious place to go, is it? You're trying to escape from a bad guy, so you go to a place that you, you historically think is not a good place to go. And as elsewhere in the Gospel, the writer quotes ancient prophecies that he sees being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And that's why we had the Hosea reading, because the Gospel cites a little bit of that reading. Now, that's not unproblematic, because actually, Hosea is talking about a nation, not a person, not a literal child. But nonetheless, the association of Jesus with Moses the leader of the Exodus, and importantly, the giver of the law, is plain enough for those who read the gospel to see. And they will eagerly await what that means, what that looks like as they hear or read this, this new book, this scroll that's come to them. Right at the heart of this gospel is the collection of teaching material we know as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6 and 7. That's why we had to do it in our own level. Now, it is really unlikely that this was a single sermon. And if it was a single sermon, and I kind of hope that Ian, that Ian would bear me out on this one, Jesus would probably have failed any preaching class that he had attended with it. It's got far too many ideas, goes all over the place, and it's frankly too long. What we actually have is a collection of themes and ideas from his teaching that have been arranged so that the person reading or hearing can see very easily how the law and therefore righteousness are to be fulfilled by those who follow Jesus. Now, of course, Christians get a little bit twitchy here, don't we, when we hear that Jesus came, as a son read for us, not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Because after all, haven't the Apostle Paul and in his wake centuries of Protestant theology taught us that salvation is by faith through grace and not by works? Well, yeah, but then we have those other bits that sneaked into the Bible. Yes, James and Hebrews being two prime examples that remind us that faith proves itself in deeds. As you all know, my favourite verse in James, faith without deeds is dead. So the Jesus that Matthew presents is not preaching legalism. He's not creating even more rules that nobody could possibly keep. They had Loads of those already that the Pharisees had come up with. Matthew's Jesus repeatedly says in this book of teaching, this block of teaching, you have heard it said, but I say. And in a truly remarkable and radical series of expositions, Jesus' hearers are told that their righteousness, the lived expression of their faith, has to exceed that of the religious elite who have used the law to control and demean others. Now, we need to be very careful when we read what Jesus says, because inevitably it reflects the culture into which it's spoken. But we, repeat, we see repeated over and over again an ethic that values and respects all people. So here are just a few. I've rephrased them, but this is parts of the message that Jesus says. Don't use language that shames or demeans others. It's deadly. Calling somebody an idiot, putting somebody down, things that hurt them on the inside, that's as bad as murder, says Jesus. Don't allow your passions, 
sexual or otherwise, to overrule your values. Temperance is, is about balance in things. Don't treat other people as chattels that you can discard for a better model, which was what the divorce law was about in those days. And don't seek revenge against those who offend or demean you. In fact, love everyone, especially those who might wish to harm you. Now, if that's not radical, and that's not demanding, I don't know what is. The heart of the law is love. Nothing more, nothing less. Love God, love your neighbour, and love yourself. We all know that. Nothing new. I've said it often enough over the last decade, and plenty of people have said it long before any of us ever met. But we also know that it's impossible to keep that perfect law perfectly, no matter how hard we try. And we will mess up sometimes. Often. Life's hard. Decisions are complicated. And sometimes it seems we're actually forced to choose between two evils. It's not that simple. It's not as simple as we'd, be li we'd like it to be. And it would be really easy to exclude, well, people whose views we find difficult or they're different from us. It would be really easy, wouldn't it, to batten down the hatches and adopt a siege mentality rather than engaging with the hurting world around us. And yet that is what we are called to do in our context and our time. Here in Glasgow or wherever else may be home, we are to speak words of hope and encouragement to all people. We're to value all people, even, maybe especially, the people we distrust or dislike. And we are to pray for, not about, and not against, all people. The year just beginning is going to be full of challenges and we will experience disappointments. There will be consequences of human greed and sinfulness. We embark on an incredibly demanding journey individually and together. And that is why, as we prepare to set sail from this desert island, Matthew's desert island, we need to go to the end of the gospel and remind ourselves the very last recorded words of Jesus. I am with you always to the very end of the age. We're kind of moving into the next stage of our service now, where we will pray and we will break bread together. And as I was thinking of hymns, 
I found parts of two hymns coming into my head. The beauty is they're both sung to the same tune. So we have a little bit of a mashup here. Two amazing hymns brought together. Let all mortal flesh keep silent. now with our prayers for others and for each other and as this is our communion Sunday it will also include the year's mind remembrance of those who have recently died or whose anniversaries of death are around this time so let's pray together loving God we know that you delight to hear our prayers And that even when we struggle to know what to say or how to pray, you are attentive to the feelings, concerns, joys and sorrows that we struggle to express. At the start of this new year, when we remind ourselves that Jesus came as the light for all nations, for all people, all places, indeed all of creation, we bring you our prayers. On a global scale, there is so much to disturb us and concern us. 
the consequences of climate change become increasingly evident. Perhaps especially as we see the wildfires in Australia destroying wildlife and homes and communities. <coughs> the impact of harsh regimes continue to lead to suffering of the most vulnerable. Perhaps among others, we think this morning of the people of Syria. There is growth of hatred and violence directed at specific groups of people. And how can we not this morning think of the nation of Iran and its neighbor Iraq and a powerful nation claiming it has targets in place? The uncertainty that arises from political decisions made by those it seems least likely to be directly affected. How can we not think of our own British Isles and those who live here? Our world is broken and we don't know how to mend it. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus describes his followers as salt and light, those who heal and preserve, those who reveal and enlighten. We pray, God, to help us to be such in whatever small way we can. In this place, and through our prayers and our giving in other places too. Our friends at BMS World Mission note that each year brings new challenges and blessings. As they near the end of a five-year strategy, they ask us to join them in praising God with tremendous gratitude for the prayers that have been answered and to pray with urgency for one million lives to be transformed by the end of 2020. At the start of another year, our Baptist Union of Scotland returns to the start of the alphabet again. And we name before God the congregations at Abbey Hill, Aberdeen Christian Fellowship, Aberfeldy Community Church, Adelaide Place in Glasgow, and Airdrie. From inner cities to rural villages, in towns and in suburbs, we pray for those who witness the light of Christ in these places. In our own congregation, we pray with gratitude for those who work tirelessly behind the scenes to progress the development project, thinking especially of those who have served as members of the steering group in past years and those who continue to serve as a specification group at this time. We pray also for our development partners, their consultants, and the City Council, as we wait as patiently as we can for news on our planning application. As we prepare to meet around the Lord's table, we recall with gratitude 
those known to us and those among us who have recently died. Remembering especially Jean Reed following the death of her father-in-law. We also remember and pray for the families of those whose anniversaries of death fall around this time. Naming Netta Boswell and Irene Allen, who we have known and loved. God of all creation, hear our prayers and help us to play our part in answering them. Amen.
At the time that the Gospels were written, there was no such thing as a communion liturgy. People kind of made it up as they went along. So why don't we imagine ourselves into the experience of the people who received the Gospel of Matthew, who heard, they shared the story and the memories, not just once, but for many, many years. We, in our imagination, are Matthew's community. And everybody is of equal value. Remember that. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, he took his place with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they became greatly distressed and began to say to him, one after another, Surely not I, Lord. He answered, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that one by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. Judas, who betrayed him, said, surely not I, Rabbi. He replied, you have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. A short prayer of thanksgiving, and then we will share the elements with no more words. God of the Gospel writers, we thank you for the stories that they tell that help us to understand more of who Jesus is. Help us as we share this bread and this wine to recall the words of Jesus. 
and then to remember them. Amen. Son of Mary, you share our humanity. Son of David, you give us nobility. Son of God, you redeem our fragility. Son of man, you are with us through eternity. Glory be to you, Jesus Christ.
the unbounded, inclusive love of God draw us into faith and sustain us in hope. May the challenging teaching of Christ transform our hearts and minds. And may the sustaining presence of God's peaceful spirit surround us and all creation, now and always. Thank <laughs> you.